Uh, we are moving our way through the book of Genesis, and uh, we're in Genesis chapter 15, a pivotal chapter in the book of Genesis and in the life of Abram. And we've been talking a lot about faith as we look at the life of Abram, and rightly so. He is the father of the faith. He is in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, and there's so much we can learn from him, not just about faith, but about the God in whom we have placed our faith. And, and that's important because oftentimes our faith is challenged by our circumstances, that's what we see in the life of Abram today. And I wonder if you can relate to that. I wonder if you have believed or known that something was going to happen, come to fruition, but it took longer than maybe you expected or anticipated. I wonder if, if you've had the experience of knowing in your heart that something was certain year after year, maybe waiting with disappointment and all kinds of frustrations and setbacks heartbreak, barely holding on, and then maybe piling onto that the ungodly, maybe mockers and scoffers in the world telling you to abandon all hope, maybe experiencing that inner turmoil, wrestling match of your own soul, and you have to preach to yourself to declare to your own heart, no, I believe, help my unbelief. I got you, you guys are taking me really seriously there. But seriously, Abram was probably a Leafs fan. <laughs> Knowing it was going to happen, maybe not in his lifetime. <laughs> but Abram's life story is, is really the story about God giving him a promise that he would never see come to fruition in his own lifetime. And so, when we hear the words, walk by faith and not by sight, Abram lived that. And he lived it in a way that models for us how we are going to have to live our lives. This passage, Genesis chapter 15, it deals with what is referred to or called the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant where God has promised to give Abraham uh, land, seed, and blessing. We saw that all the way back in chapter 12. But here in this passage, what we're going to do is we're going to see how Moses breaks down this promise to Abraham into really the two chunks of, of offspring, the seed, a promised seed, and then the land. First the offspring in one through six. And then 7 through 21, we're going to see the land become the focus. And right in the middle, the hinge of all of this is in verse 6, where it says that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He hears the promises of God. He believes the promises of God. He puts his trust and faith in the promises of God. And that is what anchors the entirety of his life. It is really what sustains his faith. And to really understand how this is progressing the story of the Bible, we have to remember where these promises come from. Why is Abraham given the land seed blessing promise? And the answer is because that is what is lost in the fall. Eden was the first land promise, you might say. 
It was the place, the piece of property God had given to the first human beings, and he had given them the command to be fruitful and multiply their seed. To fill the earth, that is the blessing to spread across the world. But we, we've looked at this in the book of Genesis, right? We know, we know how that story went. Adam and Eve disbelieved the word of God. Their faith faltered. They didn't trust God. And in a moment, they lost it all. They're kicked out of the land, exiled, barred from re-entry. And they're asking the question, what now? But remember, instead of blessing, the curse falls, and in the middle of the curse, God makes a promise, and remember the heart of that promise, that there is going to be one who comes, the seed or offspring of the woman, he would crush the head of the serpent, though his heel would be bruised by the serpent. And so the language we read about the offspring is to be traced through the scriptures, and we're seeing that now leap to the forefront in the Abrahamic covenant. You should be thinking in your mind that this is really about God preserving that initial promise he made to Adam and Eve to bring about an offspring who one day, listen, would reverse the curse, would bring his people back to the land, and would give them all the blessings of God. But his promises are often not on our timeline. The fulfillment of his promises are often delayed from a human perspective. So how do we, the people of God, continue to walk by faith when we cannot see? When our circumstances are challenging our faith, they're confronting our faith, when the opposition seems too great, too strong, too powerful, how do we continue Well, that's what this passage, I think, is really all about. When life is hard, when the world is dark, when danger lurks, when suffering is real, when it takes longer than we hoped, God sustains our faith by reminding us why we can believe his promises. I want to read for us the entire chapter, and then I want to to move through it together. Let's read it, beginning in verse 1. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven. And number the stars if you are able to number them. And he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord And he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? 
He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions." As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenazites and the Cadmonites, the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites and the Jebusites. As we look at this, I want this to be front and center. This is really about how God sustains the faith of his people. It's about, for sure, how God is going to sustain Abram's faith. But I want you to see very clearly how this applies to all of God's people who have received all of God's promises. First, faith is sustained when I believe that God's promises are great. And I can't stress how important it is to get this right out the gates because I think what happens in our lives is we look around us and we believe to begin, or we begin to believe, sorry, that our circumstances or our problems are greater than the God that we serve. And our faith often is shaken because we're so busy blowing up our own circumstances, making them bigger than the God that we serve. It's interesting in verse 1, he says, after these things, and and, then it says, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. He's going to give him a couple visions here. But notice the first words out of God's mouth to Abram. He says, fear not. And I think we just need to ask the question, why, why is he saying fear not? Well, it's related to the after these things statement. Did you catch that? So the natural question is, well, after what things? And the answer to that is this, all of chapter 14. If you were here last week, you remember what happened in chapter 14, right? I mean, it's just, and imagine right now how Abram must be feeling. Imagine you walked to school one day, punched the bully in the face, and took his lunch. How would tomorrow go for you? Imagine you did it to four bullies. That's what Abram has done, right? He's gone to war against these bully kings, these ruthless pirate warrior kings. He's plundered them. He's taken their possessions. And now he's looking around and he's going, well, great. Now what? He's got a great problem, right? 
These guys are looking likely to exact vengeance. And so here's what he's thinking. God, have I just now again jeopardized your promise? You said you're going to give me this land, but now I've really just, you know, shaken the hornet's nest. And God's answer to him is really, really powerful. He comes alongside, and I just want you to notice, what does God do? Well, here's what he does first. He speaks to him. I, we, we glance over this, but, but I, I don't think we should. <laughs> God, listen, God, whom he has just declared in the previous chapter, the possessor of heaven and earth, speaks to Abram in his specific fears and in his current circumstances. And the God of heaven and earth, possessor of heaven and earth, listen, he does the same for you and for me. And I, I want you to hear here really, really clearly. If you're new here, we're so thankful that you're here. We believe in the God who is the possessor of heaven and earth. He is the maker of heaven and earth. The book of Genesis lays this out. It's so clear. But what's so, there's a lot of people who just believe in God, right? You can, you can go to a lot of people and find irreligious people who believe that there is a God. There's a higher power. But we Christians, we don't believe in just a higher power, just in some kind of a cosmic, watchmaker God who just wound up the universe and let it go to run all by itself. We believe in a personal God. A God, listen, who speaks to his people. When our faith is weak, we, we need to hear truth from God just like Abram. So the question then is, well, where do we go? Well, here's where we go, right church? We go right here. God spoke. God wrote a book and he has truth for us. It is truth that saves us, truth that sanctifies us, and it is truth that sustains us in the, the hardest moments of our life. That's what God's word does for God's people. It reminds us what is true when we struggle with what we cannot see. So what exactly do we believe about the greatness of his promises? Well, first, notice this, he is my protection. This is how great God's promises are to Abram and to us. Look at what he says first. He says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. He, again, he uses battle imagery, which is so fitting, because Abram's fearful of an actual battle. <laughs> and he says, Abram, look, in me, you don't have to worry about a thing. I am your shield. I am your protector. I am your defender. I have made promises to you, Abram, and believe me when I tell you, I will let nothing get in the way of what I've promised to do. There's nothing that you need to fear. And I think it's so helpful just to be reminded even today that God, listen, is a shield for all who place their faith in Jesus Christ. It's interesting that when you look at the parallel of the warfare imagery, when you go to Ephesians chapter 6, we're told to put on the armor of God, right? To stand firm in the strength of whose might? His might. And we strap on the, the armor of God, and, and isn't it fascinating the shield is the shield of what? Faith. And what we're saying when we strap on the shield of faith and when we apply all of the armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the feet fitted with the gospel, the readiness of peace. Do you, do you understand that everything we're putting on is actually Jesus Christ? 
We are putting on the Lord Jesus Christ to make no provision for the flesh, to defend ourselves against the attacks of the enemy. And it's helpful to remember that, listen, faith is a shield for the people of God. In Christ, you are protected. Listen, every time you succeed in exercising courageous faith, in obedience, faithfulness to preach the gospel, to stand firm in the truth, in the face of error, every time you do that, do you realize you've just shaken the hornet's nest? You stirred up the enemy. Anytime you take ground from the enemy, get ready. Anytime you experience success or victory in the battle, get ready. Anytime you resist temptation, the enemy isn't happy. Anytime, to use the words of Jesus, you plunder the strong man's house and take his possessions away from him, he's not happy. So you need to get ready. The enemy goes on the offensive. Arrows fly, but are, if you are in Christ, listen, you are protected because you have the shield of faith. Do not fear. It's, it's like David said in Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters on paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I love this, don't you? I shall fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That's what David says. He believed the Lord was his shield. Let me ask you, is Jesus Christ your shield? is your faith in him. That doesn't mean, by the way, you're not gonna suffer physically in this life. It means you're gonna be protected spiritually, though. Cyprian, a bishop of Carthage, wrote these words in 258 AD. It was during uh, the persecution of the emperor Valerian, and he's, he's writing, speaking um, of Christians who are killed for their faith in vicious ways. I'll spare you the gore, but just listen to these words. He says, the crowds who were present wondered as they saw the heavenly battle of God. Christ's spiritual battle as they saw his servants standing with free voices and undamaged minds, strong with divine strength. They were deprived, it is true, of the weapons of this world, but they were armed with the arms of faith. Tortured they stood, yet stronger than their torturers. Jesus said it simply like this, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He, listen, he is your protection. Secondly, he is my prize. And this is how great the promise of God is. He is the prize. He, he says this next to Abram, your reward shall be very great. Some translations um, translate it like this, 
um, more like this, sorry, I am your shield, your very great reward. In other words, um, it's either you're going to get a great reward or I am your great reward. I actually think they're the same thing. At the end of the day, what he's promising to do for Abram is to bring him to a place and to give him a people where he will be the center of it all. And in the context here, remember, Abram didn't take a thread or a sandal strap from the, the king of Sodom. And Abram's response is to point out that it's been a long time, Lord, and I still don't have a child. In fact, it's been about 10 years. He says, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. He's looking at his circumstances, and it looks really bleak. He's like, God, you said you were going to give me a child. I don't see this child. How long do I have to wait, Lord? Someone outside the family is set to inherit everything, inherit everything from me, God. And God is, is so kind here. Look at what he does. Again, the second time in this passage, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And then he says to him, listen, Abram, go and look out toward heaven. And you have to imagine the scene here. It's probably like pitch black. There's, there's no, you know, light pollution from the city. It's just darkness. One of those nights, those nights where you can see every star in the sky, and, and it's just probably picturesque and beautiful, and he's like, okay, Abram, I want you to, to just look up there and count the stars if you're able to, see if you can number them, because that's how many offspring I'm going to bless you with. Before, remember in chapter 13, he, he said to him, like, look, try, try and count the dust. Count the specks of sand on the ground. God is going to give Abram a great reward. He's going to give him offspring, the promised offspring. And there's a bit of play on words here going on, right? Even with the idea of, of offspring there. He's like, Lord, I just want a child, an offspring. And Abram's like, oh, I'm going to give you offspring. It's like the plural of, of moose, right? It's meese. No. Look at the moose over there. One or many. So what he's doing here, he's like, look, there, there's going to be one offspring that's going to then be the result of many offspring. And what we know is this, that the promise that he's made about the offspring is actually pointing to who? Jesus. There is a near fulfillment. This is the way biblical prophecy often works. There's a near fulfillment, a physical real fulfillment in his own life. His own son Isaac will be this first offspring that will then lead to many offspring. But actually, Paul in Galatians chapter 3 tells us that this offspring singular is referring to Jesus Christ and the offspring plural is referring to every single person, Jew or Gentile, who puts their faith in Jesus Christ, the promised offspring, who then, in their union with him, become the offspring of Abram, the father of the faith. 
So you see, what, what he's really telling Abram is this. Abram, I'm going to be your prize. I, I'm, I'm the offspring. <laughs> Isn't that amazing to think about? Abram, I'm going to be the I'm going to come from heaven to earth. I'm the promised offspring. I'm the one you're waiting for. And I'm going to give you me. Abram's reward is certainly very great. And so too is ours. If we're in Christ, we, we need to see that Christ is actually our reward. We sing this, right? In, in one of the songs we sing, Christ is our reward in all of our devotion. Nothing in this world can satisfy the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 talks about running for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So, well, what's, what's the prize there? Well, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, according to one commentator, is this. The full and complete gaining of Christ for whose sake everything else has been counted lost. Abram, you gave up a ton. You wouldn't take a penny from the king of Sodom. But I'm telling you, you can't, what you count as lost, you will gain back a thousandfold, an infinite amount in me because you're getting everything in me. For Paul, the greatest reward was to know Christ fully and to experience perfect fellowship with him. But, but the promises are greater still. Notice that he is my provision. And in verse 6, the, the hinge of this passage what we see is that again, Abram hears this promise and it says, and he believed the Lord and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. This is, by the way, not the first time that Abram had put his faith in God's word. Abram had trusted God for over a decade now. We, we know that going back all the way to chapter 12, where he'd been called out of Ur of the Chaldeans. He trusted God there in that place. He followed him to the promised land of Canaan. But here, what we're seeing is that this is where faith was defined for him and for us. The, the way this is framed in the original language in the Hebrew, it actually conveys this ongoing faith that is being repeated from the past. So this is not the moment of Abram's salvation. This is simply, in other words, this is Moses editorializing on the nature of Abram's faith. And he's saying that Abram's faith is the kind of faith where it is credited to him as righteousness. Abram was declared righteous because of his belief. And it's telling us here, listen, that, that this is important. Saving faith is sustained faith, Okay. True faith, true saving faith is enduring faith. It's a faith that is sustained and endures till the end. Yes, there, there's faults and failures. We see that even in the life of Abram, and there's going to be a lot more to come in his life. But it is a sustained faith. Those who believe keep believing. And faith, according to the word of God, leads to our greatest provision. And it reminds us, listen, if this is our greatest provision, it actually reminds us of our greatest deficiency and our greatest need. And if the provision, the great provision is righteousness, well, that means that our greatest need or our greatest lack or our greatest flaw is unrighteousness. We are all unrighteous. 
What is the standard of righteousness? Well, it's not a, a what, really, but a who. The Word of God says you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You see, to be righteous is to always do everything right. It's to never sin. It's to always obey. And immediately that cancels out every single person, which is why the Scripture says there is none righteous, no, not one. Our greatest need is something that we cannot produce. We cannot provide for ourselves. It's not something we can earn. It's not something we ourselves can acquire And so it actually has to be provided for us. It has to be given or gifted to us. So many of us, I have a lot of conversations with unbelievers, and almost always the answer for people, when you ask somebody, what makes you think you're going to be right with God? What makes you think you're going to go to heaven? If you just ask that question, almost to a person, you want to know what they say? Well, I'm good. I'm pretty good. And every time I want to pull out a buzzer and hit an guess again right? Because you're not. You're not, you're not good. Some of you are here today. You maybe are convinced that you are a pretty good person. You're not a good person. You're a sinner, a wicked sinner who has rebelled against a holy and righteous God who is the standard of perfection. And you have, listen, turned your back on him. You have lived apart from him. You have worshiped other gods apart from him. And instead you stand actually unrighteous and condemned in your sin. That's what the scriptures teach. And the Bible says, if you want to get into the presence of God, if you want to live forever with God, which is the goal of humanity, it is the purpose for which you were created, the Bible says this, you have no hope on your own. You can't do it. You you can't. You can't erase your sin. And, And actually, it's not even just, if you could just erase your sin, that wouldn't even be enough. You actually have to have an account, like I think a bank account, credited packed full of perfect righteousness. And so what we're being told here is this, that righteousness is, listen, it's a gift to be received, not a goal to be achieved, okay? So many of us, we're working so hard to try to make ourselves right with God. We're we're trying to live this legalistic kind of life, believing that if we just do all the right things, maybe God will rescue me, save me, love me, forgive me, And the answer according to the Bible is this, none of that counts for anything. You must instead believe. And Abram believed the promise of this offspring to come. He believed in Jesus and it was credited to him as righteousness. It was imputed to him that the message here distinguishes Christianity from all other religions in the world. God doesn't save righteous people. He saves unrighteous people and he makes them righteous. It's incredible that the offspring of Abram would be all of these things for us and for him. The New Testament makes clear that Jesus Christ is our righteousness. But the New Testament makes it clear that Christ is our protection, he is our prize, and he is our ultimate provision. Indeed, all of God's promises, they find their yes and amen in Jesus. And faith is sustained when we look to him, not just, listen, for everything, but as our everything. And there's a world of difference in those two phrases. 
We can't just look to Jesus for everything. We have to look to Jesus as our everything. To count all things a loss for the sake of knowing him. And where do we turn to be filled with all of him? We turn to his word. We hear his word. We read his word. We're saturated with who he is. And he sustains our faith in the process. Secondly, we see that God's promises are guaranteed. Faith is sustained when we believe that God's promises are guaranteed. In other words, God doesn't make promises and then back out of them. He fulfills everything he says he will fulfill. And he now moves on in verse 7 through 21 to talk more specifically about the the land promise. But you have to see the offspring again in the land. They're, They're intertwined. You can't just pull them apart and separate them. They're linked. And God guarantees his promise in three ways here. First, notice by his credibility. Verse 7, it says, And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. This is the first time that God declares his covenant name Yahweh in the Bible. That language there, I am, I am, it links us all the way to Exodus chapter 3 where Moses is told, I am will send you, I am Yahweh God. But here, this phrase is a direct allusion as well to Exodus chapter 20 verse 2 where we're told, uh, where, where it's kind of previewing the Exodus and God says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you out of slavery. I'm the God, he says, who delivers, who rescues, and who redeems. And there's an argument here from the greater to the lesser that you need to see. So he's saying to Abram, look, remember I brought you already out of Ur of the Chaldeans to the land of Canaan. I did the harder part already in getting you out of that wicked place. I did the harder part, Abram, of saving you out of the world. I will surely do the easier part in giving you all things I promised you. He was faithful then, he's faithful now. You see, our God stakes his credibility on his unchanging character. He swears by his own name and his own nature. You can trust what God says because of who God is. We don't always know why, right? We, we say this often. When you're facing tri- trials and tribulations and suffering and pain, I mean, oh, listen, the Bible doesn't always lay out all the reasons why we go through the things we do in this life. And so the greatest answer we can hear in those moments is not somebody trying to explain all the depths of complex theology and trying to weave together God's sovereignty and providence. The greatest answer we can hear in the midst of any suffering and pain is so simple. We don't know why, but we know who. We know who. We know who he is. We know what he's done. He's been faithful in the past. And I would just encourage you, listen, sometimes we get so lost and bitter and angry in our circumstances because we're so bad at rehearsing the faithfulness of God in our lives. And all you got to do, listen, this, you, you just read the Bible, you realize how often God says to his people, remember, 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 remember. Why? And you, you ever notice how that often comes up when his people are like angry, complaining, and living in sin? Remember who I am. Remember what I did. 
And maybe, maybe for some of you, one of the best things you can do if, if you're really struggling today with your circumstances is just go home and start writing out a list of how faithful God has actually been in your life. And just meditate and reflect and think back about who God is, what he's already done for you, and look at your circumstances now through the lens of your faithful God. And this is why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. And maybe you can't think of how faithful God has been to you in any part of your life. Maybe you're, you're in that kind of deep kind of despair where you're just like, I can't even see clearly. I can't remember how God has been faithful. Then go to the gospel and see that God was faithful to call you out of this world into the kingdom of his beloved son. He's been faithful in the greatest thing. He will not withhold good things for his children. His promises are guaranteed by his credibility. They're also guaranteed by his covenants. That language has come up in this passage. And, and really, covenants are the structural backbone of the Bible. God makes covenants all the way through his uh, word, through scripture with his people. It's how God relates to his people. All the way from the very beginning uh, in the garden with Adam and Eve, and then you trace it with Noah, and now we're seeing it with Abram. We're going to see it uh, with Moses, the Sinai covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and then David, the Davidic covenant, and then ultimately we're going to get to Jesus, and, and we, we the church, the people of God now, this side of the cross, are living in the new covenant. Abram asked the Lord for confirmation of the land promise through tangible evidence. And some, sometimes I think people, we struggle with this. We're like, man, why doesn't he just believe his word? Can, can you just hear this? God is okay with you asking questions. This is not a statement of unbelief from Abram. This is actually a statement of faith from Abram. This is one of those, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief moments. Lord, I do believe. I, I do. I really believe you, God, but help me, Lord, please. Like, strengthen my belief. God, give me, give me more to hold on to, Lord, because I don't want to waver. I don't want to abandon you. I don't want to trip and fall like I did last time. Give me something concrete to hold on to, Lord. And God here is so kind. He gives him just that. He makes a covenant with him. And, and we read about it here. We read about this whole process, but in verse 9, he's told to go get these animals. These animals are all going to become a prominent in the sacrificial system. They're clean animals, um, three years old, some of them. Um, I'm not really sure why, to be perfectly honest with you. It could have something to do with the value that's placed on them. And he's to bring them, and, and that's what he does. He brings them, and then he, he cuts them in half, and he places them kind of across from each other, facing each other. And to us, this sounds so weird, right? Like, this is, this is just bizarre. So you got, like, it, you got, and you have to imagine this. I think we're like, okay, he's got these animals. This is a bloody mess. It's, it, looks, it looks like a war zone, okay? Except it's a little more organized. He's got them like facing each other and there's this path in the middle and there's just blood everywhere. And this was actually common practice in ancient Mesopotamia. So for us, this doesn't make sense. This is actually called a cutting a covenant. 
because they're literally cutting these animals to make this covenant. It's a process that they go through to describe how serious they are about the commitments they're making to each other. So as they're separated, here's what would happen in the ancient world. They're separated, and there's two parties generally making these covenants, and so they've made these promises, and to show that they're serious and binding, they both walk through the middle. They pass each other as they walk through the middle of this, and what they're declaring, this is really, really important, what they're declaring is this. If I fail to fulfill the obligations of this covenant that I have agreed to, may this be done to me. May I be cut in pieces. May my life end. May my blood be shed. And so he goes through this process and as he does this, by the way, you'll notice there's this little phrase there that he, he, he chases off the birds of prey that kind of come around uh, these scavenger birds. And you're like, what, what in the world does this mean? Many commentators see here a foreshadowing of the attacks that would come upon Abram's offspring from the nations. So, so these are unclean birds. So he's got these clean sacrifices representing the people of God. These unclean birds coming and picking at this covenantal people, so to speak. And Abram's chasing them off. It's as if, listen, as if God's saying, listen, it's going to get worse for the people of God before it gets better. There's going to be success in the Christian life mixed with opposition in the Christian life. There's going to be suffering before glory. And actually, I think that this is elaborated upon in verses 13 and 14 when he prophesies exactly what's going to happen to the people of God. I think it's also foreshadowed, by the way, by the darkness. Abram slaughters these animals. He sets them up appropriately. But I want you to notice, this is the fascinating part of this covenant. From this point on, Abram does nothing. You know what Abram does? God puts him to sleep. He puts, he puts Abram to sleep, and he puts him, notice the text tells us, into terrifying Darkness. Again, this is symbolic. You have to see, like, why this darkness? Why, why, why is, is this present here? This is symbolic of the presence of God. It is a terrifying thing to come face to face with the, for sinners to come face to face with the living God. It's, it's like the darkness is reflective of just God being shrouded. You cannot be in his presence. He's so holy. In Exodus 19, we see the same thing when God makes a covenant with the people of, of Israel at Mount Sinai. It says that the, the, the darkness covered the mountain, smoke covered the mountain, fire covered the mountains. Like the presence of God is a terrifying reality. He's not to be trifled with. And isn't it amazing that when God cut, cut another covenant, the new covenant, the gospel writers tell us that darkness covered the earth for three hours as the wrath of God was unleashed upon the Son of God. The most terrifying event in all of human history. And he says in verse 13, this is, this is awesome. He says, no for certain. 
God told him exactly what he was going to do. I'm going to give you this land to possess, but I want you to know something else, Abram. It's not going to be easy. Your offspring, they're going to first be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and there'll be servants there, and they're going to be afflicted for 400 years. And then after that, he's going to bring judgment on that nation that they serve. And afterwards, they're going to come forth with great possessions. You know, I think that this really helps us in our lives if we're paying attention here. You see, God tells them what's going to happen, and what he tells them is not good. And I think this actually helps us make sense of the suffering that we go through in our own lives. Because like I said before, suffering and opposition always go alongside success in the Christian life. So, so listen, here, and I think sometimes our, our theology of suffering often produces an unstable faith in the midst of difficult circumstances. Because we, we somehow think that this isn't normal, this isn't right, God's not there for me, God, how could God allow this? But God is actually saying in his word very clearly, if we're paying attention, the normal pattern of life, when, when you follow God, I mean, Jesus is clear about this in the gospel, if you want to follow me, you've got to pick up your cross and follow me. You have to count the cost. Why does he say that? Because it's not all going to be rainbows and unicorns. Right? It's not going to be like this. You, this is why I'm, I'm, I get so personally frustrated when I hear people peddle the gospel message as if it's just going to make your life all better. Everything's going to be great when you come to Jesus. Listen, it is great when you come to Jesus. Don't, it's, in fact, it's better than you think it's going to be. But it's not easier. <laughs> it's not easier. And the normal pattern of living the Christian life is this. You, you have to expect opposition and suffering and pain. It, it's this, the health, wealth, prosperity gospel is not the gospel. Can we agree on that? It's, it's a lie. It's a lie from Satan. Satan wants you to believe that the Christian life is going to be easy. Satan wants you to believe that you can have everything God promises right now. You can be happy, healthy, and wealthy right now. And if you're suffering, it's because you don't have faith. That is a lie from the pit of hell. The true gospel is this. If you have true faith, buckle up, get ready. You're going to suffer, but guess what? It's going to be all good. It's going to be good. We're going to preach the gospel. We're going to live the Christian life. And for a lot of our lives, listen, we're going to experience great success. You're going to grow and flourish in the Lord. Things are going to go well, maybe with your family and your kids. And maybe financially you'll do well and physically you're going to do well. But guess what? There's a time coming where God is going to see fit to say, guess what? Now's your time. And we need a good, listen, the good news here is this. We need a better theology of suffering. We need a better theology of the sovereignty of God. We will suffer, but God is sovereign over it. Isn't it amazing? The text, like he's saying, listen, don't worry. I got him there for 400 years. Then I'm going to bring him out and give him everything I said I was going to give him. But you, Abram, isn't this amazing? You, you're going to die. Verse 15 says that. You're not going to see any of this. Obviously, if you live to 400 years now, something's wrong. But he says, you're, you're going to die at a good old age, in peace. They're going to come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. That, that's just another piece thrown in. Why is God delaying for 400 years? Well, here's why. Because there are people 
who need to be punished for sins, but there is patience that God wants to display. Listen, judgment is coming, and and I think this needs to warn us and remind us that there's a day coming where God is going to show up and judge the wicked. And the people of God will endure until that day. We're going to be faithful and we're going to suffer, but God is going to come and punish the wicked. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in loving kindness. That day is coming, but it's not yet here. Lastly, they're guaranteed by his compassion. In verse 17, we see that the sun had gone down and it was dark It says, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And again, what we're supposed to take from this here is that, you know, from hindsight, we know the prophecy, this previews the Egyptian bondage and exodus and conquest, but most agree that these these images here, this vision that he's seeing of this smoking pot and this fire pot, this burning torch, they actually represent the Lord's presence He's like a fire. The smoke is like a a shroud veiling his holiness. And these pictures actually, they correspond, this imagery, to what they experienced in the wilderness, the people of God, right? Where God led them by a pillar of of, of a cloud uh, during the day and a pillar of fire. And this, by the way, was all a manifestation of God's presence. This is what's called a theophany. But but it's also, listen, a sign of God's compassion. God shows up. He condescends for his people. And here we see this is a form of God's love and mercy towards his people. It's the same language, by the way, that God passed through. Here's here's how you see the, the compassion of God. Because what you're seeing is that it is God alone. Abram's asleep off in the corner somewhere, dreaming horrific dreams terrifying darkness, and here's God passing through the middle of these pieces, declaring, listen, I am the God of the covenant. This is dependent upon me. You say, where's the compassion in this? Here's the compassion. Listen, God knew, God knew we never would and we never could keep our end of the bargain. And so he says, I love you enough knowing all of this to do all of this for you. I'm, I'm going to guarantee this covenant. I will keep it. I'm going to bring the seed of the woman who will conquer the devil, who will bring an end to all the enmity of the peoples of the earth. I'm going to give you the land. I am going to make this world my home where I dwell with my people and my blessing will be across the entire world. And it's a stunning reality that God would do this. He swears by himself. Why? Why? Because he knows, he knows that there's no one greater he can swear by. He knows we will fail, we will sin. He knows we're undeserving and unrighteous. And so he says, I will do it, I will do it out of my compassion for you. And this is what Paul says, right? When we are faithless, he is faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny himself. One commentator says this, Ray Vander, he writes this so powerfully. He says, what an awesome God we have. What incredible love he has for his creatures. Imagine the creator of the universe, the holy and righteous God, was willing to leave heaven and come down to a nomad's tent in the dusty, hot desert of Negev to express his love for his people. When God made covenant with his people, he did something no human being would have ever even considered doing. 
In the usual blood covenant, each party was responsible for keeping only his side of the promise. When God made covenant with Abraham, however, he promised to keep both sides of the agreement. If this covenant is broken, Abraham, uh, for whatever reason, for my unfaithfulness or yours, I will pay the price, said God, if you or your descendants break this covenant, I will take care of it all. If you fail to keep it, I will pay the price in blood. And then he says this, and at that moment, Almighty God pronounced the death sentence on his son, Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus hung upon the cross to take the covenant curse for us. His body was broken. Don't you see this? It was broken for us. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He was cut in pieces for us. Finally and quickly, my faith is sustained when I believe that God's promises are good. And this is just by way of application here. I just want to give you three quick applications as we close our service together. He goes on to describe that on that day, God made a covenant with him to give him the offspring and the land and implying a future worldwide blessing. And I just want you to hear this today. Listen, that God's promises are good for my present help. They're good for my present help. Abram was trusting God's promise even though he was in the dark. And we know what that's like. But I want you to add to this that God revealed to him his future to see all of the oppression and slavery in advance was a horrible thing, but at the same time, it was a helpful thing for him. It's why God is honest with us about what it means to follow Christ. He tells us, get ready, if you can follow me, get ready for hatred, for suffering, for oppression, for persecution, maybe even for martyrdom. The Bible repeatedly tells us in the scriptures how things are going to play out long into the future. It's actually why we have a book like uh, Daniel and Revelation. You ever read the book of Revelation? It's like, it's pretty scary. The future is being revealed in order to sustain our faith for the now. That's what you need to understand. He doesn't tell us those things to scare us, but to prepare us. Not so that we will live in fear, but so that we will learn to draw near. So that we will know that he is our ever-present help in our time of need. And by the way, do you you read the end of the book of Revelation? Do you see how it turns out? Church, we win, right? So many people are so caught up with all the, oh, this is going to get really hard. It's going to be really scary. We win. We, We win. He comes back with a sword out of his mouth, and he conquers. He puts an end to all his enemies, and we are raised to newness of life with him. That's how the story ends. And that's why when we read about the future, and we know it's going to be hard, we know it's going to get better, just like Abram knew. And guess what? It sustains our faith now. If things get hard in your life, we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of the testimony. We cling to him in faith. Amen. That's what we do. That's what the call of a Christian life is. And we encourage one another all the more until the day draws near because our salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. It's for our present help. Secondly, it's for our future hope. It is going to be better. 
It may never, listen, it may never be what you want it to be in this life, but there is another life coming. Your best life is not now and it never will be. If it is, that's a real problem. We sing this this too, right? Death is just the doorway into everlasting life. If you set your hope on this world, listen, you may gain some of it now, but you'll get nothing of God. But if you set your hope on God, you will get all of him now and all the world thrown in later. It's interesting, verse 18 and all the way through 21, he describes the land and he lists 10 people groups who are living in the land. If you know anything about the number 10 in the book of Genesis so far, what he's saying is this, it's complete, it's total, it's full. All of it is going to be yours. I won't withhold anything. And this is pressing eschatologically, uh, end times, further beyond just this land. Remember, the land is the beachhead. We've talked about this. The land is the beachhead through which God is going to reclaim the world. If you are in Christ, listen, one day he's returning and you will be with him in glory. You have an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, far beyond comparison, beyond your wildest imaginations. Do not set your hope on the things of this world. Do not seek from Sodom what only God can offer and grant. Lastly, listen, God's promises are good for my final healing. Abram was or has questions about the fulfillment of God's promises. And I want you to see, God doesn't say, oh, you have questions about the seed? Well, let me give you Jesus now. Oh, Abram, you have questions about, about the, the land? Let me give you the new heavens and the new earth now. He doesn't say that at all. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't look at us or Abram and say, Abram, life is really hard. You've got a lot of problems. Let me resolve every issue in your life right now. Let me fix your kid now. Let me fix your marriage right now. Let me fix your finances right now. Let me fix your life right now. He doesn't, he doesn't say that. He says, I'm going to, to save the world, to make all things new. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to give you the seed. I'm going to give you the blessing. But you must continue to walk by faith and not by sight. You must cling to me now. The final healing of the world will happen, but not yet. All your suffering, listen, all your darkness, all the hurt, all the pain, all the sin, all the sorrow, all the brokenness, one day soon, everything bad will come untrue. That's what the Bible says. And when it does, listen... This light momentary affliction, this is good, get ready. It's preparing us, Paul says. It's for your good. You will never appreciate the glories of the new heavens and new earth without this light momentary affliction. It's preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. He's kept count, listen, of your tossings. He has put your tears in a bottle. Not one of them is lost. One day he will wipe away every tear from your eye. And listen to this, Revelation 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, 
but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The the one with healing in his wings, one day, that one, we will look upon the wounds in his hands and his sides and we'll experience in full and finally that by his wounds we have been healed. Let this sustain your faith today. God's promises are great. His promises are guaranteed and they are so very, very good. Let's pray. Father, we thank you We thank you for all the promises that you have made to us. We thank you that you are kind and gracious. We thank you, Lord, that all the promises that you have made find their yes and amen in Jesus. They're all fulfilled in him. Thank you that one day soon we will see them all fulfilled fully, finally, completely. We will no longer walk by faith. We will walk only by sight. We long for the day that we will see you face to face and walk with you for all eternity. Until that day, oh God, we pray that you would sustain our faith. You are the God of the covenant. You have made a new covenant in Christ. And you have called us who believe in him, your children. Lord, we believe, would you help our unbelief? Now we pray, Lord, that you would receive all of our praise. May it be pleasing to you, our Lord and our King. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand together.